0: Amen. Good job. Thank you, Kim and Elise. I got to hear that a few times this week. Good stuff. If you have your Bibles. We're looking at Psalm 23. Very familiar passage. Did anybody catch the call to worship? Why in the world were we reading about the feeding of the five thousand? Anybody connect that to Psalm 23? He says he sat them down in green pastures or green fields, green grass and they ate and were satisfied. This Jesus says he had compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd so he comes as a good shepherd and feeds the sheep who are us and tells them to sit down on the green grass and they eat and are satisfied and they got twelve baskets of leftovers. I had never made the connection of thinking of Psalm 23 from Mark 6 but I think there's a connection. Some of you may be familiar with David Brooks, he's an author and writer, Um, he writes for New York Times. He wrote an interesting column a little while back that's picked up some steam on the internet, and he interacted with these two sets of virtues that we all struggle with. And he talks about these two sets of virtues, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. And the resume virtues, he says, are the skills that you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind, brave, honest, faithful, were you capable of deep love? He goes on to say, We all know that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones. But our culture and our educational system spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate that sort of inner light. Many of us, he says, are clear on how to build an external career than how to build inner character. And he says, if you live for external achievement, years pass and the deepest parts of you go unexplored and unstructured. You lack a moral vocabulary. It's easy to slip into a self-satisfied moral mediocrity. You grade yourself on a forgiving curve. Now keep in mind, this is New York Times, okay? This is not a pastor speaking. He says, you grade yourself on a curve, you figure as long as you are not obviously hurting anybody and people seem to like you, you must be okay, but you live with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life and the highest moral joys. Gradually, a humiliating gap opens between your actual self and your desired self, between you and those incandescent souls you sometimes meet. I would say joyful Christians, but... Um, so this tension is real. You have resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. Who has time for eulogy virtues in a culture where the temperature on work has been turned up just a little bit? It's a little bit more important. The amount of money you need for retirement has just been turned up a little bit. And health care costs have been turned up just a little bit. And the cost of a college education has been turned up quite a little bit. College debt has been turned up quite a little bit. The pressure to perform well on your SATs and to go for scholarships has been turned up a little bit. The amount of homework given to students has gone up just a little bit. The competition in sports for your children and the amount of time needed to really be good at this has been turned up just a little bit. The competition to get into good schools has been turned up just a little bit. Teachers are picking the gifted and talented in elementary school. And you're on your way by middle school whether you're on the fast track. So back to those eulogy virtues. The time we spend with people has been dialed back just a little bit. The time to mingle with our neighbors has been turned down just a little bit. Our involvement in deep relationships has been turned down a little bit. Involvement in ministries at the church has been turned down a little bit. Actual time we spend with family members has been dialed back a little bit because margins have been declining a little bit. And yet Brooks is saying that we're living with this unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life, highest moral joys, yet we live in a culture that ramps up the resume virtues, and downplays the eulogy virtues. So what do you do? Well, Sunday, the Lord's Day, is a day where we can put our resume virtues on the shelf, and we can focus on eulogy virtues, the inner character virtues. And Brooks mentions these incandescent souls, and this psalm we're looking at, This morning is an incandescent soul. It's David, and he shines brightly as his soul is satisfied with the Lord, who is his shepherd. So let's give attention to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That we would all grow together in maturity into the head, Christ Jesus. And that together we would grow from this passage as a body. That we'd know more of your loving heart. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this psalm gives us a couple of metaphors to consider, doesn't it? You got two metaphors. You got a shepherd taking care of his sheep. That's pretty obvious. And a benevolent, powerful host blessing his guests with overflowing provisions right in front of his enemies who are powerless to take away the blessings. The shepherd metaphor has this imagery of a shepherd leading his sheep to the green pastures and then around noon, he would lead them in, in rest in the grassy pastures by the cool and quiet waters. And then as the sheep are renewed and refreshed and restored and ready for their sh- trek back to the sheepfold, where he protects them from hungry animals that might be looking for supper on a sheep. So you can kind of picture David reflecting on his former life as a shepherd, who was one who took care of his sheep. And now David's reflecting and this is how the Lord is taking care of me. He is protecting me, he is providing for me, and he is blessing me, and my cup overflows. We don't know when David wrote this psalm, but we do know that David had real enemies after his head was anointed with oil. And so, and they were, his head was anointed with oil by Samuel the priest, and that was before Goliath, That was before Saul started hurling spears at David, at which we have at least three that he dodged and hunting down his life. And so if you look at four to six for a minute, verses four to six, and this idea that David is exercising faith, I think in context of what he was facing with Saul. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, the the literal rendering for follow is actually a better rendered pursue or persecute with evil intention or to chase, to hunt. And so David turns that around because he's being hunted. He's being chased. He's on the move. And he's looking at Abigail's sheep, if you remember, because he was living in the wilderness, fleeing from Saul who was tracking him down to snarf out his life. And so David turns this around, though, and says, wait a minute, God is blessing me. God is hunting me down. God is chasing me. God is pursuing me, but not to bring, take away my life, but to bless me. And so I think he has that in the back of his mind. And if you look back at verse 5, obviously the anointing my head with oil is this idea of blessing and honoring and exalting somebody, well, David had been exalted by God through the hand of Samuel, the the priest, to anoint him as king, and yet it's gonna be years from the time that he's anointed king till he actually takes the throne, and there's some big things that have to happen, and he's not to touch the Lord's anointed He's got to wait for God to deliver him. Even when Saul comes into the cave to do his business and everybody says, it's the Lord's will. It has come. Here he is. He's in the position of vulnerability. Take him out. And what does David do? He won't do it. He's going to wait on the Lord even though his head has been anointed. He waits. Yet, he's somebody who's Verse 4, he's walking through this shadow of death. Many times he narrowly escaped the hand of Saul. And so what I want us to see this morning, let me give you an outline for the psalm for each verse. And they all kind of have a little ring to them, so they all end with T-I-O-N. So, yeah, there you go. So if you want to, if those of you into outlines, there you go. We'll walk through this. Verse 1, satisfaction. Verse 2, God's provision. Verse 3, restoration. Verse 4, protection. Verse 5, exaltation. Verse 6, expectation. So let's jump in. Satisfaction verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, the child wrote. I have all I want. He misunderstood what the teacher said and wrote it down wrong, but he understood actually on a deeper level, didn't he? The Lord is my shepherd. I have all I want. Do you have all you want? Unless the Lord is your shepherd, you shall want. The prodigal son, if you remember, began to what? Be in want, because the pig's food was really not all that good. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. And if you're trying to live something else at the center of your life, then the rest is gonna break down. And when we're, at, we're not right with God, then we're not going to be right with self. We're not going to be right with others in relationships. And everything begins to, the, the center doesn't hold, and things begin to break down. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Who said that? The great black theologian and former sex addict, St. Augustine. I don't typically think of him like that, but that's what he was great theologian who had been delivered from the shackles of lust, and he discovered that God was better than sin. Is the Lord your shepherd this morning? You have to own up to be sheep. We have to acknowledge that we're sheep. Think about this. If the Lord is your shepherd, well, that means I'm sheep. And sheep, by very nature, are dumb, defenseless, and easily devoured. Now, if Robin Levenstein's here this morning, she loves sheep, and she may not like that I call them dumb, defenseless, and easily devoured, but nobody names their sports team the sheep, okay? <laughs> they just don't, okay? I mean, they don't put a sign on their helmets and say, we're the sheep, come on, we'll take you on. I've never seen one. It seems to me that God made animals with certain built-in protections that you don't mess with them. You don't mess with a porcupine because you'll get, bink, and you don't mess with a skunk, or you're gonna get skunked. Or you're fast, like a deer, or a rabbit, or a squirrel. But God made sheep to be these unbelievably dependent creatures who have to have a shepherd to take care of them, otherwise they're just completely vulnerable and defenseless. Could it be that God did this so that we would have a metaphor to describe how dependent we are upon God? God is often called a shepherd in the Bible. Not just the New Testament, the Old Testament. Psalm 80, verse one. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. This is how we should pray. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. There's a prayer for Sunday morning. Shine, Lord, you're the shepherd. Shepherd us and shine forth. Isaiah 40, verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Do you hear that, Neva? He will gently lead those who are with young. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the Good Shepherd in John 10. He's called the Chief Shepherd in 1 Peter 5, and He's called the Great Shepherd in Hebrews 13. Are you his sheep? There's good news and there's bad news of being sheep, isn't there? The bad news is all we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. That's the bad news. We're runners. The good news, the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity, sin of us all. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Who's your shepherd this morning? The answer is what you're following. What are you following? It's a humble admission to admit and to walk as sheep because we are weak and vulnerable and defenseless and unable to take care of ourselves without a shepherd. But once the shepherd finds us, it's a beautiful thing. David Brooks, in this same article of the eulogy virtues versus the resume virtues, he says we need a humility shift. I wonder where, where he's at spiritually because he seems like he's kind of on his way as I'm reading him. Um, he says we live in the culture of the big me. That's his definition for what I would say is Sin. It's just selfishness. We live in the culture of the big me. The meritocracy wants you to promote yourself. Social media wants you to broadcast a highlight reel of your life. Your parents and teachers were always telling you how wonderful you were. But all the people I've deeply admired are profoundly honest about their own weaknesses. They have identified their core sin. Whether it is selfishness, the desperate need for approval, cowardice, cowardice heart, heart-heartedness, or whatever, they have traced that core sin That leads to the behavior that makes them feel ashamed. They they have achieved a profound humility, he says, which has been defined as an intense self-awareness from a position of other centeredness. I would say it's they've come to the realization that they're sheep in need of a shepherd. And those that discover that discover that I shall not want. Psalm 34 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. Now, isn't this interesting? We got sheep that are dumb and defenseless, and they have no want, and yet we have young lions over here that are hungry and want to eat them. Why aren't they doing that? Because the shepherd is protecting them. Those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So verse 1. Good news verse 2 good news provision David found contentment from the shepherd he found rest the picture of the sheep here is not having to worry about where their next meal is coming from because they're lying on top of it <laughs> there's green pastures there's restful waters is literally the the greek word from the Septuagint it's the same word it's on the back of our church in Romans or Matthew 11 and it talks about Come to me, all you here are weary and heavy burden, and you shall find rest for your souls. That's the idea here. They've been led to restful waters. Philip Keller has written this great book. I think he wrote it in 1970, so it's been around a while, but many have seen this book about a shepherd, and he writes it on the good shepherd in Psalm 23, because he was a shepherd, and he says that sheep are notorious creatures of habit, if left to themselves, they will follow the same trails until they become ruts, graze the same hills until they turn to desert waste, pollute their own ground until it's corrupt with disease and parasites. They're not exactly prone to just wander towards green pastures and still waters, are they? They're sheep. That's us. We have to hear the voice of the shepherd, and his voice speaks through the word and he provides for us and he feeds us. And that's why we come to the table. We come to sit under the word of God so that we could experience his provisions afresh and realize how good he is. And that number, verse three, we see that he restores our souls, restoration, and he's the one who all of a sudden gives us a direction in life. We have a compass. He leads me in right paths is a literal translation. He's now the director of the ship. He's the director of my life, and he takes me out of these ruts and trails and hills and where I've polluted before. He leads me to the still waters. Philip Keller, again, he says this. He says the shepherd says that the the fattest sheep are actually the ones most likely to get into trouble. This was kind of surprising me. You would think the fattest sheep, I mean, that's the healthiest sheep they're and he says, actually, those are the ones as a shepherd you got to really keep an eye on because he says, nothing seems to arouse his constant care and diligent attention to the flock as the fact that even the largest, fattest, strongest, and sometimes healthiest sheep become cast and be, be a casualty. Actually, it is often the fat sheep that are that are the most easily cast. And cast means tipped over on their side and... And he's going to explain this. He says the way it happens is this: a heavy, fat, or long-fleeced sheep will lie down comfortably in some little hollow or depression in the ground. It may roll on its side slightly to stretch out or relax. Suddenly, the center of gravity in the body shifts so that it turns on its back far enough that the feet no longer touch the ground. It may feel a sense of panic and start to paw frantically. Frequently, this things only get worse. It rolls on even further, and it lays there struggling. Gases begin to build up in the rumen. That's part of the stomach. And as these expand, these gases tend to retard and cut off blood circulation in the extremity of the legs. If the weather's very hot and sunny, a cash sheep can die in a few hours. We're sheep. Isn't that nice? This is us. We fall. I'm falling, and I can't get up. I mean, that... <laughs> A cast sheep is a very pathetic sight, he said, lying on its back, its feet in the air. It flays away frantically, struggling to stand up without success. Sometimes it'll bleed a little for help, but generally it just lies there lashing about in frightened frustration. The shepherd must tenderly roll, over the, sh- roll the sheep over on its side. This relieves the pressure of the gases. Then straddling the sheep, he'll hold her up and begin rubbing the circulation back into her limbs. It took quite some time before the sheep could walk again. It would teeter, stumble, stagger, and fall. The shepherd would pick it up again and return it to normalcy. Isn't that us? Doesn't that give a little new meaning when Jesus says, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and he loses one of them. Does he leave the 99 in the open country? Does he not leave the 99 in the open country? He goes after the sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully Puts it on his shoulders. Now that's got to be the most wonderful NIV adverb right there that I underline for you. Because I tell you how I think we tend to read this. We put in the adverb reluctantly, resentfully, unwillingly, begrudgingly, hesitantly, unenthusiastically, half-heartedly, sourly, bitterly, sharply, angrily, irritably, irately, furiously, heatedly, hesitantly, unlovingly. Because we doubt God's incredible love for us, that he would go after us like that and be excited and joyfully rub us back to normalcy to get the circulation back. Is that how you, do you believe God loves you like that? We have to replace the adverb. Joyfully, not reluctantly. Joyfully, not resentfully. Joyfully, not angrily. Joyfully, not irritably. Joyfully, not furiously. How's the good shepherd restore your soul? We're told, we read it this morning, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And God the Father says to the son, awake, O sword, and strike the shepherd. He says about his son that he's going to strike him. That's Jesus. And in 1 Peter 2, we are told that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might... Died to sin, lived to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have what? Return. Now that's underlined because that's the same Greek word in the Septuagint as restored. And the truer translation of restored is actually return. He returns us back to himself. And so I think Peter is using the same word here to remind us. We're returned to the shepherd because he's the one who returns us, brings us back to himself. Verse 4, protection, protection. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For right in the middle of the psalm, what do you get? If you've got Psalm 23 in front of you, what do you have right now? Middle of the psalm. You're with me. Robert Godfrey in his book on the psalms He says this is the the crux that everything hangs on in the whole psalm. So let's try this. He says after every statement, you need to say, for you are with me. So let's try it. I'm going to say the first part, and you guys say, for you are with me. The Lord is my shepherd. Very good. (laughs) I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name'sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. Is that not good news? He's with us. And when he's with us, that changes everything. Recently I went flying with my my brother. My brother is a pilot. My dad was a mechanic who worked on planes, but he also was a used to he had his private pilot license. But me, like I need a GPS to find like the Birkey's house, you know? Like it's true. I mean, or Pat Young's house, you know, I would need to, I've been there several times, but I have no sense of direction, so I knew the pilot wasn't gonna be a good career path for me, because we would get in the air sometimes as a kid, and every once in a while I would hear them talking up front saying, can you see the airport? I'm not seeing it. I'm thinking as a kid, like, are you kidding me? Like This is the worst thing in the world. Like, You can't see the runway? Anyway, so recently I went flying with my brother And we had this little experience where every time i've gone flying with them we've always done vfr flying which is visual flight rules everything's great because i can see the ground i can see in front of me i can see all around life is good but the weather was kind of getting bad and so we were, we were at Gaithersburg Airport, and before we left, he called up and he filed for IFR flight plan because he wanted to be at 5,000 feet going over the bay. And the reason he wants to be at 5,000 feet crossing the bay is because, as he told me, the water is cold this time of year. And if we're at 2,000 feet at VFR and we lose power, we, we're not going to make it to the other side. But at 5,000, we're good to go, and we won't be swimming. So that was oh, nice to know, but... So we file for, for IFR flight plan, 5,000 feet. We take off, and I start having this flashback of 20, so like 25 years ago, my brother got his first commercial job flying freight for Mid-Atlantic Freight in Harlingen, Texas. I flew down there. I, I'm sure this, probably today you wouldn't be allowed to do this, but I flew with my brother on his commercial flight in the passenger seat of a Cessna caravan, which is just the biggest Cessna single-engine plane with a propeller prop. And we took off at night after we delivered the cargo, and it was pouring down rain, and it's nighttime, and it's, you can see nothing. And I just started having this feeling of, like, shutting down. I said, Bob, wh- what happens if the propeller stops? You know, you can't see anything. He just said, it wouldn't be pretty. <laughs> Well, I was having that feeling again as we were heading now towards the clouds. And if you've ever done this in a big plane, it's not a big deal because it's it's nice and big, but in a little plane. I mean, the wings are sh- is shorter than this row right here. I mean, it's a little Cherokee 180, and it's smaller than my car. And I'm seeing the clouds, and I just said, Bob, I don't know how I'm going to do with this. And instantly, I started getting hot, and I quickly took off my jacket because we're going in the soup, and I'm like, I'm claustrophobic. I got issues, you know? So I'm just, like, fearful, like, what in the world? And we just go in, and then all you can see is, like, that's it. The instruments I can see the wing, I can see the propeller, and that's it. But then I just started realizing, wait a minute, my brother's got thousands of hours flying. He's happy as a clam, it's in his world, he's not bothered in the least, and I'm not flying the plane. I'm flying, but I'm not the pilot. I have somebody with me who is a little bit better than I am, and so I don't need to be afraid. Now, how much better is Jesus than my brother flying a plane of your life when you're going into the clouds and you're fearful because you can't see the ground, you can't see what's going on? God has got it a little bit better than my brother had it, and we were fine. And so he leads us through this valley of the shadow of death, and the word here can actually mean death shadows or the idea of deep darkness. And it's used. this reference is used 10 times in the book of Job, and Job refers to his life being one of deep darkness. And often, t- Philip Keller talks about, for the sheep, there was this idea that as the sun was going down, there was shadows, and that's often where animals and critters would hide that would attack the sheep. And he does talk about how these sheep are just so pa- easily panicked, he says, even a stray jackrabbit, a stray jackrabbit, suddenly bounding from behind a bush, can stampede a whole flock. And just like sheep, just like us, and so we have this idea of, of dark, deep, and darkness, and yet in the midst of that, God is saying, He's with us. He's with us, and he's, His rod and His staff. They comfort us. He's with us. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers? after Jacob died, if you remember, his brothers threw him into the pit and left him for dead, and, and Joseph goes down to Egypt, and he becomes the, the prime minister, and he provides for his brothers. But when the dad dies, the brothers think, well, this is it. Surely, Joseph's gonna get even now. And Joseph reminded them in Genesis 50, 20 and 21, these familiar verses, as for you, you meant it for evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now look at verse 21. Now I want you to see Christ in this verse because Joseph is a type of Christ. And Joseph looked at them and said, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now if Joseph can do that for his brothers, How much more does Jesus, the elder brothers, say to us, don't fear, I will provide for you and your little ones, and he comforts us. My favorite scene in the movie Prince Caspian, which wasn't a great movie, um, by the way, if you've seen it, um, but there's a great scene that's not in the book, but it's where Lucy's got her little dagger, and she's on the other side of the water, and the whole army is coming against her. And she's just got this little dagger like she's going to take on this whole army. But she can't because Aslan's standing next to her. And when the camera moves and you see Aslan, you're like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah. And the whole enemy just starts coming across the water. And Aslan, And all the waters crash and, and all the enemies are destroyed. And Lucy's just fine with her little dagger. Well, that's us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil. Because you're with me, he protects us. Verse five, exaltation. So here's the idea here. Is a gracious host exalting his guest? And, and he's such an honored guest. He's anointing his head with oil, and he's preparing a table in the presence of his enemies. And if you're familiar with the Bedouin law of hospitality, for those of you that are into war movies and read Lone, uh, Lone Survivor or saw the movie, And you saw the reason that he survived was because of this Bedouin view of hospitality. If we bring you into our village, we will fight for you, and we will keep you from the enemy. And that's what God is doing here for us. He's saying, you prepare a table before me right in front of my enemies, and they can't do nothing. And that's the idea that God has promised his children, is that this is what it's going to be like for eternity. Nothing can take away any of our blessings, If God is for us, who can be against us? Even the greatest enemy of all, death can't separate us from the love of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says this, no ordinary shepherd would picnic with his flock in wolf infested territory, but perhaps this is the point. This is no ordinary shepherd. His ways are not our ways, his wisdom is not our our wisdom. Can you see the sheep gathered around the shepherd and they can hear the wolves baying and snarling and threatening? but the wolves can't do anything because the shepherd's there. And lastly, expectation. This word surely is better translated only or can be translated only. It's a colloquial term, and I'm reminded how Mecca will often say to me, no doubt, bro, no doubt. And that's what this word actually means. It means no doubt. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. That all that's coming to you, every single thing that's dealt to you that are in Christ is goodness and hesed, this Hebrew word, for his loving kindness, his covenant mercies, his loving heart, his grace. That's all that's being dealt to you. Everything that you think is being dealt, and this is a bad hand, a bad card, surely, no doubt, only goodness and mercy. They're chasing you, they're hunting you down to bless you all the days of your life and you're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is he your shepherd? Wouldn't you want a shepherd like this? Revelation makes the promise at the end because none of us fully get Psalm 23 in this life in the sense of like, boy, we get green pastures every day and still waters like there's a lot of stress still. But Revelation 7, 16 and 17 says, They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb, who's in the midst of the throne, will shepherd them, lead them to fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's our promise from our shepherd, King Jesus. I hope he's your shepherd. And if he's not your shepherd, would you be happy to, Become sheep and make him your shepherd? Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We take your yoke upon us. It's the only yoke in the universe that actually brings rest. And we need that rest for our souls this very minute. And so as we come to this table, as we've sung already this morning, feed us till we want no more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.